Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Angela Mack, who's executive director and curator of the Gibbs Museum of Art in Charleston, and she's had that position for 11 years. And today we're going to continue our conversation about South Carolina between World War I and World War II. And in particular today, we're going to talk about the Charleston Renaissance, the explosion of art in all of its forms uh, in the 20 years between the wars. So, Angela, with that lengthy introduction, welcome back to the journal. Well, thank you, Walter. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm honored to have been invited. Why don't you explain to us what the Charleston Renaissance, how you would define the Charleston Renaissance? Well, the definition of the Charleston Renaissance really belongs to a curator who was before me at the Gibbs and, in fact, uh, is a wonderful scholar. Her name is Martha Severance. And she, of course, was the first person to sort of publish the concept of the Charleston Renaissance through a book that was done on the subject. Uh, it The precursor to that was actually a book that she did on the well-known artist of that period, Alice Ravenel U.G. Smith. Um, the Gibbs is fortunate to have an extensive collection of her work, probably the largest public collection that exists. And uh, so that was the beginning of the conversation of creating or 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 developing this concept, this sort of confluence of artistic talents that took place between the two world wars. Uh, Essentially, the time period is from about 1915 up to 1945. Obviously, we want to talk about the artists in addition to Alice Ravenel, U.G. Smith, but it was writers, it was poets, it was the beginning of the preservation movement. In looking at that era historically, I always begin with the Poetry Society of South Carolina, which really was sort of a nexus. This is where all these different people came together. Mm -hmm. And that was its official name, although most people through the decades have referred to it as the Charleston Poetry Society. (laughs) But well, in the the original bylaws, they considered people who lived in Mount Pleasant as out-of-town members. As out-of-town members. (laughs) (laughs) That, as well as the Charleston Etchers Club, I mean, there were these organizations that began to develop during this period, as well as you mentioned, the various preservation, the early forms of the preservation movements that You know, you get this understanding that there was a recognition that there were things in Charleston or opportunities in Charleston for cultural development, and people were taking advantage of it. Yes. If you just look at – you're talking about cultural development because then then we're looking at things like the Society for the Preservation of Old Spirituals. The Preservation Society began as – it was the old buildings, I think. Old dwellings. Yes, old, old dwellings. Things like anthropology or subject areas like anthropology were, at least looking in South Carolina, were rather, rather new. And one of the aspects of the Renaissance had to do with the African-American culture in Charleston. Again, whether it was art or literature or you had individuals actually doing anthropological studies of Gullah. Mm-hmm. Linguistics. It was it was an incredibly rich period of of looking at something that people had ignored for pure, many it, years. It was brand new, and and I think you know a lot of that question or that concept. You know, I often ask myself and my colleagues do the same thing. So so was it was it the recognition because other people were coming from other locations and discovering Charleston? with sort of the beginning of the tourism movement in the early part of the 20th century that helped locals understand that there was really something to preserve. Uh, Because you'll remember, too, that this was the period of time where many of the area plantations were being purchased by extremely wealthy people from the north, the Guggenheims, the Whitneys, uh, the Cresses, uh, the Baruchs. There, There was this confluence or this 
this beginning of uh, a discovery of, of the region. And I often think, and, you know, since you also started with the Poetry to Society, I mean, John Bennett was from off. Harvey Allen was from off. Ha- Harvey Allen. And, and sort of this discovery. And certainly that was the case with many artists who were traveling to Charleston and to the Lowcountry region at, at that time. I mean, Edward Hopper, for example, 1929, you know, he spent, uh, what, about a month to six mm-hmm. weeks in Charleston and created a wonderful body of work that we had, the Gibbs had the opportunity to showcase uh, several years ago as a group. We brought them all to Charleston. I think there were 16 watercolors that he did in all. And what was fascinating about that was bringing those pieces to it in one location to look at them together and then to see the influence that our Charleston artists had on him. Well, and you, part of it was people were beginning to come south for the winter. And you mentioned the, the art world. They thought, yes, it was a, a very nice locale. The winters are mild. So these outsiders discovered it. They came, and some of them, like Allen and Bennett, stayed uh, and became part, part of the fabric. Became part of of the fabric, um, and those two men with Debose Hayward and Josephine Pinckney pretty much mm-hmm. did found the Poetry Society, and the Poetry Society. And I don't want to dwell on them too long, except they are a fascinating group. In their first year book, their whole purpose, they said, was to spit back at H. L. Mencken who had declared the South the Sahara of the Beaux-Arts. And they wanted to show that in in their yearbook, which not only included poetry and essays, it also included art. Mm -hmm. Yes. John was a great etcher and uh, certainly did some wonderful pieces. Uh, He was, I believe, for a period of time, also a member of the Charleston Etchers Club that offered this opportunity to use this medium among people with a press that was located at the Charleston Museum eventually. All right. Well, let's talk about etching for a minute because today people might not understand when you're talking about etchings. Right. There are a lot of old jokes about etchings, but <laughs> but the Charleston Etchers Club and, and what the whole process is about. Certainly. So at the turn of the 20th century and even prior to that for artists in Europe, for example, and in the Northeast, there was this recognition by artists of creating multiples. So it was a very economic decision on their part because this this opportunity to create one piece, make multiples of it through a printing process, in this particular case, um, an etching process, which involves carving or creating a plate that allows you to put the image on the plate and then put it into acid so that the actual image is etched onto the plate and then run it through a press with ink so that you could make multiple copies. Uh, Having several works that take less time to make as opposed to one work at a time uh, certainly was a, a, a decision on the part of many artists that this was a way to go and be economically viable. It was also very important in terms of the publication of books. And you mentioned the Poetry Society in the sense that they used etchings to sort of illustrate many of the poems that they produced. And that just created a much better package and something that was much more sellable. Certainly that also fed into the tourism industry because artists like Elizabeth O'Neill Verner and Alfred Huddy really took advantage of that medium. And, and Huddy is another outsider. And Huddy is another outsider who who became more of an insider but still wasn't completely accepted because he was a part-time resident of, of Charleston. He would always, every summer, go back up to Woodstock, New York, where he really was well-established as um, an artist of that group and then would come down in the winters, as you just said, like uh, many birds of passage. <laughs> Huddy paintings and etchings today are 
very pricey. They are very pricey, and we like to think that that's because of the wonderful book that we published at the Gibbs. We did a major retrospective of his um, etchings, his his dry points, actually, his prints, uh, a few years ago and published a wonderful catalog of all of his prints, which has just made a huge difference in his value and sustaining his value going forward. The whole gamut of art and literature from that period has really been rediscovered in the last 20 years. It has. I agree. Um, And the desire to collect these artists, um, particularly, you know, various waves of individuals who move to the region see the value in acquiring these works and adding them to their collections. Well, DuBose Hayward has been rediscovered. Julia Peterkin has been... Rediscovered. Rediscovered. Well, DuBose Hayward was a poet. He was a novelist. Um, He he wrote screenplays or play... He dabbled in art, too. (laughs) (laughs) Today, people would recognize DuBose Hayward as from his novella Porgy, which, of course, became the opera Porgy and Bess Mm -hmm. in collaboration with two folks from outside. (laughs) Um, Who also came to Charleston. Who also came to Charleston. And and in some ways created its own little artistic spinoff because George Gershwin's cousin, Henry Bodkin, who was also a great artist from the Northeast, came down and created a whole series of paintings. Uh, We have a couple of pieces in our collection. I know Greenville County Museum has a couple of pieces that, that reflect the story of Porgy. And it's interesting how, you know, as a result of DuBose Hayward, that this sort of confluence of artistic capabilities came together in a little microcosm within the Charleston Renaissance itself. And, and of course, that indirectly spurred the preservation movement because of the alley where Porgy lived. Uh, Correct. Catfish Row. Catfish Row. Which, of course, has been beautifully restored. Restored. <laughs> <laughs> He might not recognize. I know. Or Alfred or Elizabeth O'Neill Verner. I wonder if any of them would recognize it today. (laughs) Well, I mean, they might not recognize downtown Charleston, period. I mean, you can't read the Wall Street Journal real estate section. You see Charleston properties advertised at $6 million or $7 million when – as late as the 1970s, you could have been buying those for forty or $50,000. Correct. You know, one of the interesting things to me about the rediscovery of the Renaissance is after World War II and with the onset of the civil rights movement and changing culture, it was looked at, well, this is all of this work is patronizing. It is downgrading to African Americans. None of it has... Any, any relevance. But particularly with Julia Peterkin, I have seen contemporary anthropologists say her description of life at Langsine Plantation near St. Matthew's is incredible. She got it right. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that we are hearing now, appropriately so, voices from a lot of different sectors. And it does make me and I think um, the Gibbs Institution reevaluate and put in a larger context the work of the Charleston Renaissance. Uh, There is no question that many of the artists who were working at that time looked upon the African-American figure as part of the landscape. And in many ways, I'm sure that that was the uniqueness of our region uh, in terms of its agricultural continuation, so to speak, as opposed to the industrial north or, you know, what you might see in Europe. That, That component is very clear. It becomes more clear when you when you begin to look at the work of Edwin Harleston, who was of the same period 
African-American artist, had an opportunity to be trained at the MFA school in Boston, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and then did a stint with the wonderful African-American artist Aaron Douglas, who at the time was working on the murals at Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee. And in the Gibbs's collection, we have a fabulous portrait by Aaron Douglas, I'm sorry, by um, Edwin Harleston of Aaron Douglas. And when you look at those images of uh, Edwin Harleston's work, you see that incredible distinction of African Americans being represented as real people as opposed to being viewed as part of the scenery. Didn't Laura Bragg try to do an exhibit of his work? She did, and it never happened. All right, and Laura Bragg was the director of the Gibbs back in this Actually, time. she was the director of the Charleston Museum. Excuse me, the Charleston, okay. Right, and so there was an attempt on the part of the Charleston Museum to do, through her, to do an exhibition of his work, but unfortunately it never occurred. We have since, the Gibbs has since done a major exhibition of his work. We now probably have the largest repository of, public repository of his work. And we continue to promote his activity within the city, not only as an artist, but then also part of the civil rights movement. I mean, he was one of the early members of the NAACP chapter in Charleston. So to your point, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. You have artists who were promoting the the uh, influence of African Americans on the culture of our region. But at the same time, the voices of those individuals were not part of the conversation. And so that's where the question lies. You know, what, what do we need to do now? Well, obviously, those voices have to be added, and that component has to be added. Well. Angela, we'll talk about that. But first, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Angela Mack, who is executive director and curator of the Gibbs Museum of Art in Charleston. And we're discussing the Charleston Renaissance in all of its aspects, art, literature, and we were particularly talking about the influence of African-American culture in the Charleston Renaissance. Let's talk about how the Gibbs is letting those voices be heard. Well, this conversation as far as creating a more um, – an institution that is more representative of our community and, uh, and, and particularly the African-American community really started with us several years ago. Um, the Gibbs has been an institution that has tried to sort of present to the community and to our visitors the richness of African-American culture dating back to almost when I started at the museum in the early 1980s. Uh, we hosted a fabulous exhibition back then called Forever Free, which was the first exhibition on African-American sculptors in this country. And then we, of course, have created many shows on, as I said before, Edwin Harleston, Philip Simmons, uh, I, artists. I, 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 we need to let people know who Philip Simmons Philip was. Simmons is one of Charleston's uh, incredible treasures in terms of being uh, an early uh, iron worker, an early 20th century iron worker, and many of the marvelous gates that or fences or structures that you see in the city <clears throat> were actually produced by him. And we have a fantastic portrait of him in our collection by the artist Mary White, uh, showing him in his workshop, just uh, getting ready to, you know, to start working on a particular piece. But in the early 2000s, we did an exhibition entitled Prop Master. And it was, it was a very revealing show for us because 
we allowed an artist by the name of uh, Juan Logan, who at the time was dean of the MFA program at um, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and his former wife, Susan Harbage Page, to come to the Gibbs and actually curate an exhibition from our collection. This was following in the footsteps of another artist by the name of Fred Wilson, um, also a fabulous African-American artist, who we will be featuring his work for Spoleto in 2020, who in the 1990s did a similar project at the Maryland Historical Society, where the society allowed him to come in and curate an exhibition from his perspective of the works of art at the Maryland Historical Society and objects. That lens, that perspective from uh, an African-American artist really changed the way that museums looked at themselves because it became quite clear that our perspective is very white, that the institutions were very white, that the concept of a museum itself comes out of a European tradition, and that we really needed to examine who we are as um, repositories of our community. So when we did our own mining the museum with um, Juan Logan and Susan Harbage Page in 2009, in 2009, it was an extremely revealing um, moment. And as a result of that, it really changed the way that the institution began to think of collecting, uh, displaying works, um, how we interpret works, and then also becoming a much more diverse institution with regards to its leadership, its staff, and um, and its membership. Well, early on, you mentioned Alice Ravenel, U.G. Smith, mm-hmm. whose watercolors are absolutely incredible. She did other, other uh, media as well. But when you exhibit some of her works, do you now look at them in a, con- a different context? I mean, I'm thinking about her, her series on rice culture and, and so forth. Certainly, and particularly the Carolina Rice Plantation series, which the Gibbs owns, all 30 pieces. Uh, she gave those to us after she had published the book with her father, I believe it came out in 1937, and then she gave all the original watercolors that illustrated that book to the Gibbs in 1938. Which was an incredible publishing feat. I mean, very, it was. very expensive for very its day. Very expensive. Beautiful color images. I don't think any publication since then has really reproduced those works as well as they were done in that original book. And it it sold very well. It, was... it sold very well. But we do. I mean, we look at those images differently today. She, obviously, it was, it was a very romantic image of plantations of the 1850s, which was the time period that she was trying to capture. And if you read the book, that is certainly what she and her father were trying to accomplish, to create this sort of um, depiction. Therefore, in our interpretation today, you know, we, we really delve into that much more clearly in terms of explaining this is not the way it was. This is an idealized version of what it was from an individual whose perspective was different, perhaps, than a lot of other people. Uh, It is, for Alice and her father, it's a concept of loss. For other people, it's a very different concept. One of the interesting artists of that day who did silhouettes was Carew Rice. Yes. And... His material was very collectible, particularly as it dealt to African Americans. That doesn't seem to be the case now. He's one of those who's kind of fallen out of favor. Elizabeth O'Neill Verner's, some of her work, when you think about the, the flower ladies. Right. That's just, as you said, it's a landscape story. It's not a people story. Correct. 
It is. As as much as we like to think of these individuals as pushing forward and recognizing the importance of the African and African-American culture in our region, you really have to think about their reasoning, their their desire. What 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 were they really trying to achieve and begin to sort of sort through those nuances and also hear from the voices that were not part of that story. Well, it's it, it's interesting the Society for the Preservation of Spirituals, uh, all, all white, in a way did preserve. But at the same time, in Columbia, you've got Allen University mm-hmm. collecting spirituals, obviously from a very different perspective. Perspective, yes. Early on in the, our conversation, you mentioned that not just do we have this artistic flowering in all of its manifestations by locals, but we've got this outside influence, whether it's the artists or it's the tourists. And in many ways, it's the tourists who help make the Renaissance, Charleston Renaissance, a national phenomenon. They took back, whether it was a, a, a Werner print or an etching by Huddy, of or course. they had they had picked up a book by DeBose Hayward or Herbert Ravenel Sass. That's how it became became known. And Charleston was not bashful about promoting tourism in the, in this period. In fact, the whole state was promoting tourism mm-hmm. because we now had some fairly decent highways to get people <laughs> <laughs> down down here. And interestingly, the News and Courier editorialized against. Tourism. They thought they said we don't like these tourists, whether they are the boll weevil or the rich bipeds from up north. <laughs> but then, at the same time, the News and Courier promoted historic preservation mm-hmm. and the artists of Charleston, which is what was bringing. And isn't that all still happening today? <laughs> well, <laughs> and certainly, you know, it's this love-hate relationship. That that Charleston, I think, has been part of for such a long time in terms of, and the terminology, of course, that goes with it in terms of people from off or uh, uh, those those recognitions of trying to keep things the way they were, but at the same time, desperately wanting to be part of what's current and and exporting what is wonderful and rich about our region. Well, I think about trying to be current and go back to the Poetry Society. They brought in Gertrude Stein. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I mean, one of the most controversial controversial and brilliant poets of the 1920s. Uh, And people like that wanted to come to Charleston again, whether it was for intellectual life or the Mm -hmm. artistic life, or it was just a nice place to spend two months. Again, I've looked at the, the, I haven't compiled a complete bibliography of the works that came out of, uh, and it wasn't just, when I say Charleston Renaissance, if you include Julia Peterkin, you're, you're reaching up into the to the upcountry, and uh, the works that would, the Gonzales did on African-American mm-hmm. language. It just seemed to be, in a time when there was not much money, South Carolinians are getting published in all the national magazines. The major publishing houses are buying their books, mm-hmm. whether they are history, whether they're literature. Of course, DeBose Hayward uh, has bestseller after after bestseller. Uh, even when it was things were, were controversial, beyond Porgy, he kind of pushed the envelope in dealing with uh, race relations. Mm-hmm. And of course, Peterkin certainly did. Scarlet Sister Mary, which won the Pulitzer Prize, was banned in some South Carolina towns. And you've got one of my favorite writers from the Renaissance, Josephine Pinckney. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Her poetry was wonderful, came out before World War II, and her books that came out right after there, I mean, Three O'Clock Dinner is mm-hmm. still on my shelf. <laughs> and her influence, again, she had connections. Of- Wonderful connections that probably brought more people to the area. I mean, you know, the it's so interwoven in terms of the outreach and 
decisions to come to Charleston, the mystique of the city, its history. I mean, today, it's fascinating to me when when how much of the history that is provided through various um, tourism opportunities focuses on the Civil War and that component or, or legend, I would say, probably of the significance of Charleston with regards to that, that has just sort of grown well, we exponentially. Do, <laughs> there are those of us who have been trying for years to look back to the 18th century and the American Revolution since South Carolinians always seem to like to win, as I've reminded folks, <laughs> let's talk about a war that we won. That we won. And people would argue successfully and have that the revolution really was won here in the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, that, as we all know, so much of that was written out of the history books. Yes, yes. And that was interesting when we talk about the Charleston Renaissance. That was not really recovered, except perhaps if you look at the work going on in the Historical Society, mm-hmm. publishing material on the revolution, which they which they, which did. they did. They managed to keep their doors open during the Depression. And D.D. Wallace's four-volume history of South Carolina, three-fourths of which he published in 19, mm-hmm. the 1930s, three-fourths of the book dealt with South Carolina prior to 1865. So the colonial period got, got a, nice, a nice boost, but not many people are going to carry that you know right. that book around those books around. But the same, the, the same thing happened in art history books. I mean, if you look at how American art is taught, and it has changed, fortunately, in the past twenty or so years, colonial art, mostly in the Northeast. Maybe there's a dip into Virginia. Uh, then the Hudson River School. And then, of course, you know, out west with Bierstadt and other artists that really sort of presented the story of America as this incredible landscape. Uh, The South was completely left out of that story. And granted, it didn't fit nicely into that picture of creating a national art form because in the 18th century particularly, there was this tremendous tie still with um, Europe and with England and the continent. But at the same time, that story is about how fashion and, and innovation in the arts really was in tandem with what was happening abroad, as opposed to being delayed or derivative of. And so... You know, we have tried very hard to represent or reintroduce that story into the history of American art as we have the whole concept of the plantation system in terms of landscape art in the 18th and 19th century, as well as the early 20th century. Uh, We published a book in 2008 called Landscape of Slavery, the Plantation in American Art. And it's sort of a foil to the conversations that have taken place with regards to the Hudson River School and how significant that was in the development of landscape painting in this country. It's fascinating because so much of our regional landscape is tied up with the concept of plantations and the way that our um, geography was changed uh, because of that incredible labor force, uh, enslaved labor force, that literally, you know, redesigned our environment. Omissions in the art world, I can remember back in the, in the 70s, I was doing a lot of work with the folks up at Old Salem on Southern Furniture. And, of course, at that time, the epitome of a colonial furniture was that great Philadelphia high boy that's all of this ornate whatever. (laughs) And they would say, and look at this work out of Charleston. It's just plain. It it had gotten a style, whatever. Well, as Brad Raschenberg at Old Salem and others pointed out, we're sorry. Philadelphia was about 50 years behind. Behind, exactly. Charleston— 
what Waite was doing was exactly the current styles in England being produced in in Charleston. Some folks still have a hard time understanding, uh, understanding it, except I think Antiques Roadshow has finally figured that <laughs> has out. Finally figured well, out. they have done at least, what, four episodes in Charleston? So I think they have. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, the folks up at Williamsburg have mm-hmm. have done have done the same thing, uh, but it but it has taken a while, and well, and it's the publication of these incredible books. I mean, what Brad did uh, at uh, Mesda, uh, what we've been able to do in terms of the book that we published called In Pursuit of Refinement, uh, Charlestonians Abroad, and it covered the period from 1740 to 1860. What we've been able to do with our Landscape of Slavery book, uh, books that we've published on Smith and on artists like Henry Bembridge. I mean, we have been able, institutions in South Carolina have been able to redefine the way that we look at American history and American art history and the decorative arts. And that's a great thing. I mean, you know, so many scholars have contributed to that. And it's making its way into the university structure where these are... Slowly. Slowly, but it's still (laughs) happening. And, you know, it's exciting when a student comes up to you and says... I know this institution. I know what you've done because your book is one of my textbooks. It has taken time, but it is making a tremendous difference. Well, Angela, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Angela Mack, who is executive director and curator of the Gibbs Museum of Art in Charleston, and we're discussing the Charleston Renaissance in all of its aspects. The work that was done in South Carolina between World War I and World War II in many ways laid a foundation for what's exactly. going on. Exactly. I mean, it's the rediscovery that you originally talked about. And I'm also thinking about uh, if you deal with plantation culture, you look at the evolution of Middleton Place. Mm-hmm. But it was a project of the, in the 1930s when the Smiths saved it. Exactly. But how it has been interpreted in the 20, 21st century is, is quite different and, and very dramatic. Mm-hmm. It's telling the story of everybody on the place. Exactly. And, and that's, that's what we, continue, we need to continue to work on, to create the multiple voices, to look at these complex social systems from all vantage points. Uh, and the arts plays a tremendous role in that because it it provides you with the the episodes or the ways in which people have visually interpreted their spaces over time um, and now just kind of creating uh, an equilibrium in terms of the conversation I think is what we should continue to strive for. I know that Gibbs has a sizable Werner collection. In it's fact, li- actually, the Gibbs the Gibbs doesn't really have a sizable Werner collection. What we have when she uh, before she died, she or maybe it was in her will, I can't quite remember that, but um, she created a complete set of her etchings that she gave to the city of Charleston and with the understanding that they would be cared for by the Gibbs Museum of Art. So that her there is a complete suite of her etchings that belongs to the city and we maintain. And if you go to City Hall, uh, you know, since it's been renovated in the City Hall chamber, we manage all of the portraits and the works of art that are in that space since City Hall was renovated, I believe, in like 2005 or 2006. Mm -hmm. And there always is a group of four or five of her etchings from that larger group that she gave that are on the wall in that space. So, So, you know, will we continue to maintain that and, of course, care for it? Of course. I mean, that's that's the beauty of museums. Whether things are in fashion or out of fashion, 
you know, the the need to preserve and protect in perpetuity is what sets us apart from anything else. Uh, do we need to create a better balance? Absolutely. I mean, that has to happen. And I'm happy to say that in the last uh, 10 years, we have doubled the number, almost tripled the number of objects in our collection by African Americans or people of African descent um, that relate to our region. So, you know, that is how we need to progress forward and and better understand the full range of cultural development in our region. Well, Angela, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. It's just like people may not read Herbert Ravenel Sass anymore or Bennett or Allen, but those books st- should still be in the collections of the Historical Society, the Library Society, if somebody if somebody wants to. Now, the preservation movement really took took off in Charleston during as part of the Charleston Renaissance. And I think I'd like to talk about how that has really helped change the face of the city. Yes, it has. I mean, you know, I think that that component of the Charleston Renaissance is probably the best known in terms of, you know, the 1931 ordinance that was the first ordinance to ever be created in this country to protect a whole, you know, area of a city. And certainly Susan Pringle Frost's contribution to all of that and to, you know, the recognition of these houses and other buildings in the vicinity, I think, is is a tremendous part of this larger story. What is also interesting is, you know, the the activity of the federal government to some extent and the WPA movement in terms of the preservation of the Dock Street Theater and its reopening in 1936. What a lot of people may not know is that you know, as the city was sort of stepping into this realm more and more, it was going to various organizations that already existed, like the Carolina Art Association, that is the nonprofit side of the Gibbs Museum of Art, to help nurture these projects. And one person we really haven't talked about but looms large in this area is Robert Whitelaw, who was the first director of – professional director of the Gibbs Museum of Art and um, the Carolina Art Association and was really very much involved with the preservation movement through a civic commission organization that was sort of an offshoot of the Carolina Art Association that then led to the creation of Historic Charleston Foundation. Also, another individual, Helen McCormick, who uh, was curator for a period of time under uh, Robert Whitelaw, and then eventually became director in the 1950s. Um, and her amazing book, uh, pamphlet essentially today, where literally the goal was to document all of the historic buildings that were extant at the time and rate them essentially in terms of their significance. Now, what we have to look at today is what she also left out. And again, you know, that goes back to the conversation about the voices that were left out. So we have to look at these things a little more critically and a little more discerning today, but we can't ignore the fact that it was the beginning of this recognition of how significant our landscape, our 
city landscape was and how much people wanted to protect it. Eventually, what has happened in the beginning in the late 20th century and certainly into this century is uh, what Jonathan Vlatch would talk about, back of the big house. Back of the big house. Uh, You don't have... Uh, you don't just discuss at Middleton Place what was going on in the manor. You're talking about what was going on uh, on the street mm-hmm. uh, in, in the slave community. And the same's happened with uh, historic Charleston and the other. Uh, the Aiken Red House. The Nathan, yes. It's a complete story of, as, as well as they can be made now of that world. Mm-hmm. And it's not the gone with the wind world. Correct. And And – Clearly, this this portion of history <clears throat> is not easy. I mean, it's extremely difficult. It's, but we have to look it square in the eye and understand it and try to take stock of it. The multiple organizations in, in the city, the Library Society, the Historical Society, the Charleston Museum, the forthcoming International African American Museum, all are doing their their part to try to tell a larger story than mm-hmm. what's been told in the past. A more complete story. This is terrible to ask of an of a, of a art curator. Who is your favorite artist from the Charleston Renaissance <laughs> period? <laughs> oh, Walter, I have avoided that question. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but I'm not going to answer it now. <laughs> well, um <laughs> Let's all right, let, let me refer. I, I, my, my answer to that is always the artist that I'm working on at the moment. <laughs> you know, it's, it's. I'm sorry, I had, to, I had to ask, but I, I would just say, if you were to have a small dinner party, who are some of the figures from the Charleston Renaissance, that period that you would like to have around the, around the table, regardless of their field. Well, um, I think it would be I would I would have loved to have known Alice Ravenel UG Smith. I would have liked to have known Helen McCormick. Um, I would have really appreciated, and you know, I don't mean to go down this woman track, but it sounds like I am Laura Bragg. Mm-hmm. I had the pleasure of meeting and getting to know Anna Wells Rutledge, um, who was an incredible historian and art historian in her own right and wrote the definitive book early on. The, the other people, I think, of course, I would have loved to have gotten to know Edwin Harleston mm-hmm. and to understand his perspective on his native city. Merton Simpson, another artist, African-American artist that I did have the pleasure of knowing and doing an exhibition on him, was fascinating to me. I mean, just an incredible repository of information of early Charleston. Uh, There's so many. I mean, there's so many. You know, John Bennett. It it goes on and on. Well, and and you who drawn very heavily from the art world, I would— Ask Josephine Pinckney. Of course. <laughs> uh, DuBose Hayward. Uh, I would also ask Alice Ravenel U.G. Smith. I had the pleasure of knowing both Helen McCormick and Anna Wells Rutledge. You know, my group would have been a little bit more mixed in mm-hmm. terms of Susan Pringle Frost. Of course, yeah. Um, so it would just create an incredible. Now, whether or not they would all sit down together. That's. <laughs> That's another question. <laughs> well, but see, in, in making up the, you know, it's like playing fantasy football. You can put together your team. Your team, of course. But we're talking about people whose ideas have enriched us all. And uh, whether they would have joined together or not, <laughs> we can still imagine what that conversation would be. I know. Yeah. So I hate it. Alfred is giving me the wind-up sign. Any last words you'd like to give our listeners about the Charleston Renaissance? Well, there's, you know, I think in my mind, there's still so much to discover and so much to to interpret and understand and reinterpret and look at again um, and invite others to look at 
from their perspective so that we can really delve more into the complete picture of our of our region without all of those conversations which are you know you mentioned the International African American Museum which we are so excited about in terms of its opening in the near future and how much these new colleagues in our city, these museum colleagues, have enriched our lives as professionals in Charleston is is just phenomenal. I mean, we've become friends. We've become um, we've worked together on various projects already. Um, it's I just can't wait. I'm excited about the next ten years in our city. Well. I hope that the journal is still around in 10 years. Alfred and I will ask you back. <laughs> Me too. I hope I <laughs> am <you> too. <laughs> Angela Mack, the executive director and curator of the Gibbs Museum of Art in Charleston, thank you so much for being with us today on the journal. Thank you. It was a pleasure. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It was fun having Angela back on the journal after a few years. And one of the most important parts of our conversation, I believe, is that the work that was done in South Carolina between the wars, whether it was in fiction or in art or in historic preservation, laid a foundation for the South Carolina of the 21st century that is being presented to the world. New perspectives, but they're built upon the work that was done nearly a century ago. That's all part of our history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.